0: I have uh, put before you a sheet with verses on it. The purpose of that is to keep you from having to uh, turn to a lot of different texts this morning just to help us with uh, the use of our time. Uh, I don't often preach uh, in a topical format. I have the last few weeks uh, because the nature of the topics that we're covering kind of demand that kind of uh, approach uh, so <clears throat> that's why I'm printing these out, putting them in front of you, and also it gives you an opportunity to have them so that you can review them, uh, go over them, and, and here's what i a challenge you to do. Check me out in terms of what I'm saying, read the text, and see if that is not the clear indication uh, of what the text is saying. Okay, don't, don't take what I say because I say it. Search the scriptures, okay? Read the word of God and come to a clear understanding of the things that God is saying. We as a church have an understanding, and I as a pastor have an understanding, that our job as Christians is not to be political, but to be prophetic. Okay, not pathetic, which sometimes we are, but prophetic. Okay, prophetic means that we speak forth a word to the culture in which we live. Okay, sometimes prophetic speaking speaks as, uh, it indicates speaking about things that are going to take place in the future. And that's a spiritual gift that God gives to people. You find that throughout Scripture. Okay, The other side of a prophetic ministry was speaking the truth of God to specific situations in the culture. Okay, And in the, in the topics that we're looking at over the last few weeks and weeks to come, we're looking at, at, at issues that God calls the church to address. Okay, To shine the brilliant light of biblical truth on topics that are relevant to the experiences that we have in our day and in our times. So we as a church family... I, as a pastor, have an obligation to touch on issues that have moral ramifications. Okay, I'm not going to drift into issues of opinion. I'm not going to drift into whether, as an illustration, whether I believe that health care should be an issue of public purview or private purview. I'm not going to address that kind of an issue because there are opinions that people have on both sides of that. The Bible doesn't address the issue. Okay, it does address issues like marriage. It does address issues like life and the value of it. So it is to those... Sorts of issues that we will find ourselves speaking. Acts 20 and verse 27, the Apostle Paul said to the church in Berea, he says, I have not hesitated to speak to you the whole counsel of God. And so if we are going to be a biblical church, we don't have the option of shying away from topics that we find uncomfortable. Okay, I put a lot of time into my preparation for this discussion. Why? Because to me, it's uncomfortable. Sometimes truth, quite simply, is uncomfortable. It causes concern for us. It causes angst for us. We know the struggles that people go through as they face issues like this. And nevertheless, the issues are addressed in Scripture, and therefore, we must speak. Okay, the other thing I want to say as we go through this series is this. I want you to be clear that we are not pursuing a utopia, okay? We're not trying to take back the country for Jesus, Okay, it's that, that's not the desire. The desire is that we as Christians would be beacons of light where God has called us to live. And that our, our primary desire would be that we would shine the light of Christ. And, and I want to I I encourage you in this way. Don't get focused on the big picture because the big picture will frustrate the daylights out of you. You don't have the mental capacity. You don't have the resources to effect change nationwide in yourself. Okay, you do by prayer. And that's where you go with those kinds of big issues. But the question that I want to ask ourselves this morning is, what is it that you can do to make a difference in these areas? Who are you engaging in discussions about issues like this that really matter, issues of life and death? So I want to encourage you not to say, I want to change the whole country. You know what I want to see God do? I want to see God change this country life by life. Okay? Because if lives aren't changed, the country won't change. So I think that helps us to focus our attention as individuals and say, if I'm going to make a difference... In my world, I need to start influencing, becoming salt and light in the lives of people around me. So go out and do that. The other thought I want to give you as a warning is this. Watch that we are not taken captive to ideology rather than biblical theology. Okay? Meaning, don't raise your ways of thinking about things to the level of biblical authority. Okay, don't take your personal opinions, baptize them, and convert them into theology. Okay, theology is biblical truth. Okay, we shine the light, not of our opinions, but of biblical truth. Okay, and when you're speaking biblical truth, you should speak assertively, you should speak lovingly, you should speak confidently the truth of God's word. Okay, without hesitation and without apology, but in love. Okay, so there's that balance that it's not take opinions, baptize them, make them look like they're equal to the word of God. They are not. If your opinions happen to line up with scripture, then you're on good ground. Okay, but when it's opinion, admit that that's what it is. The topic of our discussion this morning is life a gift from God. It's a topic that would be easy to avoid because it is a loaded topic. It is often misunderstood and many have a variety of opinions that they hold with various degrees of strength. The question I want to kind of present to you this morning is this. Do your beliefs about life emerge from Scripture? Okay, does what you believe, does what drives you when you think about the issue of the value and gift of life, is your thinking informed by and driven by biblical truth? Okay, that's the question as Christians that we always need to be asking ourselves. Statistically and experientially, I know that many people in our church family have been personally affected by this issue. And I know that it is emotional for many within our congregation because of past experiences, past choices that now they regret. I understand that and I desire to be sensitive to that situation. I also believe that we as God's people have a, have a responsibility to speak for those that don't have a voice. I think the book of Proverbs is abundantly clear on this topic. That we are to rise up and speak up for those that don't have a way and a means to depend, defend themselves. I don't believe that only means the unborn. Okay, I believe it means across the board we have a responsibility to take up the banner of truth and to seek justice for people that are struggling. We live in a country where 1.6 million children are aborted every year. And so what that means is this. And the statistics, I think, are very clear across the board. And in many ways, embarrassingly so. Okay, that that many within all branches of the church have a view of this topic that is not in alignment with biblical truth. And so as we go through this, what I want to encourage all of us to do is to say, what does God say about this topic? And how do I take that truth and begin to influence the culture that I live in with biblical truth? I want to start our discussion this morning by asking a very simple question. And I think this question is, it's a little bit of a different approach. It's, it's actually a question that's asked in a book that I spent a good bit of time reading this week called The Gift of Life. And if I was to encourage you to read a book on this topic, I would encourage you to get the book, The Gift of Life. Okay, the the whole book is somewhat established on a basic, fundamental question. And the question, it, to me, it was like, okay, why didn't I think of it with that degree of clarity in the past? Here's the question to ask. What is the unborn? Okay, what is the unborn? Okay, so people go off on all their discussions and various issues, down various rabbit trails, dealing with the 1% of issues, the life of the mother, rape and incest, all kinds of trails and travels people go down the question that we need to kind of put out there, and the question that I want to answer this morning is this. Okay, what is the unborn? Okay, what does the Bible say that it is? What does the culture say that it is, which is not to me encouraging today? What does the human conscience say that it is? Okay, so what is the unborn? Genesis 1 is the first passage I want to look at. The Bible says, then God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his image. And by the way, this is the the only individuals, the only creation that is called or spoken of as being formed in the image of God is humanity. Okay, that means that we have before God a uniqueness. Psalm chapter 8 says, we have a dignity, we have a right to live that is given to us by our Creator. We are unique among all creation as image bearers, as reflectors of God Himself. Okay, that is an amazing and astonishing truth. So what is the biblical answer to the question of, What is the unborn? First of all, they are made and created, in fact, in the image of God. Next text is Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And what I want you to notice is the personal attention of God to the creation of the human being. I praise you, David says, because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. And as I read that statement, I know that full well, I say this to myself. How much does David really know? David was astonished by what he knew at that time in history. Think of what we know today in light of medical advancements and the ways that we can analyze things and see things that were never. David was blown away by what he saw. And what he saw was really, seriously, the fringes, the, the outer edges of the glory of humanity created in the image of God. He was stunned by that. Notice what he goes on to say. He says, my frame was not hidden from you. You saw what was taking place in the secret place. and An analogy, I believe, to the mother's womb. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my un." Formed body. I think this is what most of your translations say. That word in the Hebrew language literally means embryo. Okay, your eyes saw my unformed embryo. And David can speak of that embryo with what? Personal pronouns. Talking about the identity and nature of what lied within at the time of conception. My unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Which is to say what? God had taken in David's life a personal interest. And as David responded to God in the psalm, he had an understanding, a grasp of that, that from the time that he was an embryo, an unformed and not completely mature human being, he was in fact a human being with personality and with personhood. Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5. Jeremiah says this, or God says to Jeremiah, I'm sorry, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. Which is to say what? God gave to Jeremiah in utero a divine, God-given dignity via purpose for his life. God had a reason for Jeremiah's life that he could talk about it being established before, in fact, he was born personalized knowledge and life purpose. Luke chapter 1. This is a text I don't think that I've shared in relationship to this topic, but it's it's, it's a theme that has struck me this week as I've gone through this. Luke chapter 1 is the discussion of the birth of John the Baptist. Okay, a man who was called by God, we know from the text, prior to his birth, given a task, a mandate that he would be a prophet, a preacher, and a man of God. The angel speaks to Zechariah, his father, and says, do not be afraid, Zechariah. This is when Zechariah came into the temple to participate in his priestly functions. God appears to him, gives him an amazing prophecy. Zechariah questions it, and his wife has the blessing of a silent man for nine months. Okay, here's what he says. Zechariah, do not be afraid. Your prayer for a son has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. Okay, that is to say that what lies within has gender. You are to give him the name John. Okay, when was the name given? The name is given prior to his birth. It is his identity in the womb. He will be a joy and delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth. Verse 40, moving ahead in that chapter, it says this. When Mary, who is now coming to visit... Elizabeth at Zachariah's home, when she now finding out that she is expectant with the child, the Christ child, when she comes to visit Elizabeth, she greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, what happened? The baby leaped in her womb. Now, think to the basic question that we're trying to address What is the unborn? What is it in this text? The baby leaped. In her womb. Okay. God's definition of what lied within Elizabeth at six months was that it was a baby. It was a life given and protected by God. When Elizabeth heard this, the baby leaped, experienced joy, experienced emotion. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 44. As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb... Okay, then go to Luke chapter 2, verse 5. Joseph and Mary are now going to Bethlehem to register. Mary is exceedingly and abundantly pregnant. And he goes there with her. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him. She was expecting a child, the Christ child. All right, so what was within? A child. Okay, that's the definition. While they were there, the time came for the baby... That's unborn, to be born. So that in, in Luke, here's what you find. The unborn, the preborn, and the born are called what? The exact same thing. So the same Greek word is used to talk about the unborn within, the preborn, close to that time, and to the born. What is the nature, what is the definition of the unborn? Okay, the Bible I think is clear, it is a life. Galatians 1, 15. Paul talking about his birth says, God who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace. So what is Paul saying? From the time of birth forward, he was a life, a human being with dignity and with God-given purpose. The other text that comes to mind is the book of Job. Job chapter, I believe it's chapter 3, when Job is giving his first reply to the struggles and the critics of his friends. In his depression, in his struggle, what does he say? He says, cursed be the night that said a son is conceived. Okay? And what is Job saying? I had gender, I had life, I was a son on the night of my conception. That's how the Bible consistently looks at the nature of what is within. Okay? So the first question we answer is, what is the unborn from the biblical perspective? The second question I want to ask is this. What is the medical answer to what is the unborn? Okay, what is the medical answer to what is the unborn? I just want to give you two quotes, one from a man named Professor Matthew of Harvard Medical School, given in 1981 to a Senate Judiciary Committee. Here's what he said. It is scientifically correct to say that an individual human life begins at conception. Dr. Watson from the University of Colorado Medical School said this. The beginning of human life is simple, is a simple and straightforward matter. The beginning is at conception. Let me describe to you what happens. At conception, a sperm and an egg join. The mom contributes 23 genes. The dad contributes 23 genes, 46 total. Okay? They come together to make a unique individual formed in its earliest stage as an embryo. It is what? It is a whole human organism, however immature, but it is what it will be. That embryo does not convert into something else. That single cell called an embryo is a human being. And that's the understanding and definition from the general medical community. It is not all that it will be. It is living and growing, yet utterly unique and completely independent if you will, of the mother in terms of what's happening within. It is sustained by, but it produces its own blood. It develops its own heart. It is a living organism. In two weeks, there is a discernible heartbeat. And the heart that is present is circulating blood within the embryo. Folks, listen to this. At two weeks, that single cell has produced multiple cells, a heart that is actually producing and pumping blood throughout the system. In two weeks. Amazing to me. At six weeks, the embryo or the child is less than one half inch long. Fingers are formed on the hands. At 43 days, there are detectable brain waves. So all of those things have come into place. At six and a half weeks, there is something that is often called in the old school, the quickening, the movement. At this level, unexperienced and unfelt by the mother because of the thickness of the uterine wall. At nine weeks, fingerprints appear, male sexual organs are forming, gender becomes clear, kidneys are functioning. At week 10, the gallbladder is functioning. At the end of 12 weeks, all organs are functioning. All of this occurring in three months. Vital signs are the medical definition of life. The unborn is a human person, though it is not yet totally independent. Okay, and, and here's what some of the argument is. Because that child in the womb is dependent upon the mother for life, it is not yet fully human. That's the argument that you will often hear kind of put forth and proposed. The argument is about capacities. In other words, what defines a human being in the secular mind is what? It's the capacities, it's the functions that it has. And when those capacities are diminished, the life is to be less valued, and in this case, often terminated. Okay? Here's the question I want to ask Is a child at three months utterly and totally independent? Okay? If the child in the womb is expendable because it is still dependent upon the mother, therefore not an individual yet, what is the difference between that child dependent upon the mother inside the skin here or sitting on the mother's lap? What is the fundamental difference? Both are utterly and completely dependent upon another for survival. We live in a world where we have something called 3D ultrasound, which is given a stunning window into the womb. Children can be observed sucking their thumb, reacting to sound and music, voices kicking its legs. Uh, A mom will often say, I'm starting to feel that gift of movement, and there's a a preciousness to that. The thought of eliminating that should be so deeply troubling to us because what is within is in fact a unique creation of God, a blessed and precious gift from God. Why is there a resistance to call the child within a living human being? Ever ask yourself that question. Why is it that our culture doesn't want to define it for what it clearly appears to be? Okay, if it walks like, if it talks like, if it sounds like, what do we say? It is. How how can you look at all of these things and come to a conclusion that it is not, it, it appears to be, yes, but it is not, because it is still dependent upon the mother. It's still in an environment where it needs to be sustained, It doesn't have certain capacities and functions yet. Therefore, it's not fully human. I think the answer is an admission that what is within, that the unborn is in fact a human life, has radical moral consequences. Not just in the valuing of life and choosing life, but also in how we treat life that God has given to us. It affects things deeply if you understand the dignity of humanity created in the image of God. It is a life-changing thing to look at a brother or sister in Christ, to look at a friend out in the world and realize they are created in the image of God, deserving of protection, deserving of life, deserving of dignity, deserving of support and help. It changes things when you define it for what it really is. My experience has been that those who favor the termination of life in the womb rarely desire to venture into a discussion about what the unborn is based upon the physiological evidence. Why? Because there's something in the heart of humanity that says what is within is precious. Folks, do you understand this? We have laws that protect the life of a child within and we also live in a country that has laws that allow that child to be eliminated. That if in the case of murder, a mother who is pregnant is killed, that the person who murders the mother can be charged with double homicide? Why? Because of what is so abundantly clear. uh, Because of what shouldn't have to be said. It should simply be obvious. So the medical answer is that life begins at conception. What is the cultural answer? The cultural believes that an unwanted, unformed, unformed or unborn, I'm sorry, developing fetus, is not a living human being deserving of rights and protection. What is the real problem with the cultural understanding and why is it that people struggle with admitting what it is that is within? Why the, why the fight? Why the wrestling to keep it what it is? And I think the answer to that question is that this is an ethical and moral issue. and our culture, ethics and morality have been reduced to personal preferences. Okay? What you desire to do with yourself is up to you. Okay? Your personal preferences determine what is true and what is right for you. And as Christians, what do we we want to say? We want to say, no. We're created in the image of God. We're given certain inalienable rights. We're given certain moral codes and conduct that God has put within us that should govern our decision making. The bent towards personal choice and personal freedom Blinds to the reality of what lies within. See, if I live with a disposition, a predisposition, a pre-choice that I have the right to do whatever I want to do with my body, number one, I'm living a lie. I don't live in a country that allows me to do whatever I want to do with my body. That's not the world I live in. I live in a world that is governed by Judeo-Christian ethics, by moral principles and boundaries and laws that actually restrict my behavior. And most people that I know are willing to acknowledge that and to at some level strive to live by those laws. The sad truth is that most abortion-minded individuals operate on a sloppy assumption that what is being aborted is less than human. It's because folks, if, if, if you accept it as a human being, you can't justifiably terminate it. So that's why the question, the most fundamental question you should raise with someone when this topic comes up is, what is the unborn to you? What do you believe is happening when you feel that child moving and kicking within? What do you believe that that, that uh, an ultrasound is revealing in 3D when it shows you the facial expressions and and all of the the parts of the body? What is that to you? We need to come back to the question. What What is the topic of discussion here? If it is seen as less than human, it is then expendable. For the sake of what? And I think this is an important question for us to ask. For many people, abortion is chosen because it is inconvenient to have a child at this time in my life. It's called selective or elective abortion. It would mess with my college career. It would affect our family financially. It would be embarrassing to have an oops at 50 plus. Those are the kinds of decisions that drive a lot of what's happening. And you have to ask yourself this question. Okay, how can that be? How, how can you get to a place where you understand what, what is within, what is the unborn, and still say that it's okay to eliminate it? And I think the answer is something like this. It is based on a, on a, a sloppy or blind assumption. And I believe this is the lie that is often shared with women who seek help at a pregnancy center. They are told that it is merely a, and I quote these words from R.C. Sproul's book. They are told that what is within is a blob of protoplasm. It is an indiscernible mass of tissue. Folks, can, can I just be honest? That's a lie. What lies within is not indiscernible. Even in its embryonic stage, we know what it is. It is a distinct human being with all of its unique traits mapped out. That's what Psalm 139 is talking about. David could say, God, you knew my days before they started in terms of counting from the point of birth forward in the womb. You knew. You knew what I would be like. You gave me unique gifts and capacities or lacks of capacities, folks. By God's design. And I believe that often women are lied to. And I believe that often men have coerced women to do what is convenient for them and for their future and for their financial well-being. And I think that's something that at times when that happens, that needs to be repented of. It needs to be owned. We can't just brush over it. I think the reality of what is revealed in 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 a 3D ultrasound is very powerful because it is true. It is true. And I think it's important for us to say that what we think about what is within does not determine what is within. Okay, so that that I can't say, well, I made a choice to desire that it would not be a baby so that I could eliminate it. Okay, that'd be like me sitting down, because I love cheesecake. It'd be like me sitting down for dessert. And every time somebody puts something in front of me, I say, that's cheesecake. Okay, you would say, you have issues. Okay? Is it was a what? Why is it cheesecake? Because I want it to be cheesecake. My choice determines what it is. Folks, that's what's happening in this issue. If you want to select it to be or choose it to be or see it as a blob of indiscernible protoplasm, see it as that, and then you can do whatever you want. And I would say that's true. It's like pulling a tooth. But it's not. It's not. And we live in a world that is lying about the truth in this regard. We live in a world that is medically and technologically advanced in so many incredible ways and lives in denial of what has been discovered. Why? Because people want freedom. They want to run their own life. Don't tell me what to do. You can have your conclusions about what's within and I can have my conclusions and both can be equally true. That's absurd. That's absurd. Now, I want to tell you this. I'm speaking strongly right now, okay? When I interact with people on this topic, okay, I, I'm exhorting you. That's what I'm doing. When I talk with someone, I entreat them. I plead with them on this topic. And I, now I feel like God has, through reading this book, this army with the question, what is it that lies within? How do you define it? How do you see it? Here's the medical definition. Here's the biblical understanding. Let that truth enlighten your mind. Let it bring clarity to what appears to be indiscernible. See it for what God says it really is. In the case of a murder a few years back, a man murdered a woman. I think her name was Stacy. Murdered his wife who was pregnant and was charged or being being brought up on charges of double homicide. Some within the uh, right to life or right to uh, choice community resented the double homicide charge. The leader of that movement said this. She said, if this man can be charged with double homicide, then that opens the door to doctors who perform abortions. It opens the door to them being charged with what? Homicide. Now, here's what's fascinating. Some people are not operating in blindness, folks. I know there are a lot of you in this room, because I've talked to a lot of you who have been through this experience and you were told a lie. And it led you to decisions that you regret today. I'll come to that at the end. There are people who are pushing this agenda full well knowing the ramifications of the charge of double homicide for the killing of a pregnant woman. And who resist the truth that is abundantly clear. Practical argument on this topic of what is the nature of the unborn. Okay, and I just—I've used this with you in the past, just to share. It's an observation. Okay, when I talk to a woman that's pregnant, she will always refer to what is within as what my baby. Anybody teach her to say that? Did the doctor say, "Hey, you can go out today and say that's my baby now"? No, it's where does it come from? It's just—it's—it's it's an innate gift from God an innate fundamental understanding through general revelation through the conscience that God has pre-programmed according to Romans 2 that they know that what is within is their baby and they will do everything they can to protect that baby and when a, a, another mother sees a pregnant woman smoking you know what you see you see rage how could you do that why are they reacting like that? And that's true in the secular world as well. Why the reaction? Because they know what is within. It is a human life. And by that activity, by that habit, you're jeopardizing the health of that human life. You shouldn't do that. Do you understand what I'm saying? And yet I live in a culture that says, you, you can not only do harm to that, you can actually destroy it. And I would say that that is what one songwriter called the moral schizophrenia of what is happening in America. There's this this utter confusion, this fence sitting that brings immense pain to our culture. If a mom wants the child, it's called her baby. If the pregnancy is unwanted, the decision to eliminate changes the nature of what is within. That's the argument of the culture. And I would say to you this morning that I think that is severely flawed logic. A mom who takes prenatal vitamins, who goes and gets ultrasounds, who finds out the gender of her child, who monitors the health, who exercises, who eats wisely, who stops smoking and and avoids alcohol, is applauded as what? A good mom. Okay, and that's just, that arises from the conscience. This is what Romans 2, if you look at the last text I have down for you, this is what Romans 2 is saying. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, people that don't yet know God, When they do by nature the things that are required by them, when they naturally understand that what is within is a precious life to be protected and valued. When they understand that, what's going on? They are a law for themselves. Even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law, that is the the mandates of moral appropriateness, are what? Written on their hearts and their consciences. Also, bearing witness, their thoughts now accusing And even now, defending. Folks, what has God given us as human beings? God has given us a conscience. God has given us a moral thermometer that says that's wrong and that's right. It measures things. And I believe in this area that when a mom is pregnant and is carrying a child, she refers to it as her baby. Not because she was told to refer to it that way, but because it is the natural way to designate the unborn. It is, in fact, a child. I'm amazed by discussions in recent years about fetal surgery. Amazing to me. When they can find a physical problem with a, an unborn child and actually go in and operate to do what? They go in in fetal surgery to operate to do what? What would you say? Save the life of the baby. Well, in that same building, You can have people choosing to terminate the very life of a baby. And here's what I'm going to tell you: if you start thinking about it from what is the unborn by God's design, that you will find your conscience, you will find your heart awakening to this issue. My desire is to cause you to think this morning: what is the unborn? The difficult question this morning is this what is abortion? And I think it's impossible to describe what abortion is apart from understanding what the unborn is. Once you define what the unborn is, you can now come up with an adequate definition of what abortion is. It must be defined from the perspective of what the child undeniably is a baby a human being. Therefore, every successful abortion ends the life of a human being. Okay? Think through all the things that I've given to you. What is abortion? It is the successful termination of the life of an unborn baby. That's what it is. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, his classic book on ethics, said this. He said, destruction of the human embryo in the mother's womb is a violation of the right to live which God has bestowed upon this life. He said, to raise the question whether we are here concerned with a human being or not is merely to confuse the issue. And I love the brilliance of that. It is evident as to what it is. The simple fact is that God certainly intended to create a human being and that this human being has been deliberately deprived of its life. That, he said, is nothing but murder. Okay, that is strong. If the unborn is a human life, then the willful termination of it is what? The taking of an innocent life. The Fifth Amendment of the United States Constitution says this. It says, no person shall be deprived of life without due process of the law. No person shall be deprived of life without due process of the law. Since Roe v. Wade, children developing in the womb are not accorded this protection. Okay, that's the simple fact. That right to life is in our culture regularly and consistently denied. The valuing of the free rights of individuals has been elevated above moral truth and the results of that in our country are tragic. They're tragic. Just when Black, Justice Blackman, who wrote the majority opinion for Roe v. Wade, said this. And, and I'm, not, I'm not surprised that he said this. He said, we, do, we need not resolve the difficult question of when human life begins. And I, my response to that is, are you kidding me? We don't have to resolve the issue of when life begins. When we're talking about what? Legalizing the termination of what is unborn. He said it should be sufficient to note briefly the wide divergence of thinking on on this most sensitive and difficult issue. Which I think is smoke and mirrors. Okay, that kind of talk that simply obstructs the truth, obstructs the reality of what is within, at some level, at some point, it becomes a lie. Okay, it becomes a willful distortion of known facts. They ignore the most sacred duty of government in this decision, according to Romans 13, and set a historical precedent. And they also ignore the preamble to our Constitution, which speaks clearly and justly of our being endowed by our Creator with the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Anyone who has raised a born child has probably experienced deep joy in the unborn stage. Deep joy, anticipation, looking forward. Sometimes the reality of raising your child is a little more difficult than what you dreamed of, right? Being honest. But you love your kids. Your kids can do the stupidest and darndest things at times. You know what? They can always come home. Why? You love them. God gave them to you and He did it through a means that made it exceedingly personal. Why? So that you would have a bond and attachment to them. So He put them inside. He didn't have to do it that way. That's how He did it. Why? So that they would be loved and nurtured and they would be, by definition, part of that family. Attached to the life of that family. Sustained by the life of that family. The results of yielding to popular opinion have been sad for America. Al Mohler made this observation. He said the Supreme Court may have the power to reverse legal precedent as it did in 1973, but it does not have the right or the authority to reverse moral truth. I like that statement. You can make a law that makes something legal. Because it's legal, doesn't mean that it is morally right and appropriate and good for the country. He said though abortion." Though abortion may have been illegal one day and legal the next, it was not morally wrong one day and morally right the next. And I think the conclusion to that statement is that our country has a serious problem on its hands. Our country, meaning all of us. And that is the blood of innocence. I believe that is a problem, that is a struggle that we as a nation, as part of this nation, have to deal with. The result of these decisions is that abortion is defined as just a medical procedure on a, feeder, on a fetus described as a biological parasite or a blob of undifferentiated protoplasm. Why? To devalue, to destigmatize, and to make personal choice and personal protection of one's lifestyle, of one's career, of one's financial stability. Okay. That's what happened. Our culture speaks of a trend and a desire to make abortion legal and rare. My question is, why? Why would you have to make a medical procedure legal and rare? Would America America have settled for making slavery rare? Just like to have less of it. Did people wrestle to gain civil rights for all people in our country so that the violation of civil rights would be rare? I don't think so. A few years ago, a film came out that was deemed controversial. It was called The Silent Scream. The pro-abortion community said and described the film as provocative... And inflammatory. Why? Because it was provocative. And it was inflammatory. And it was undeniably true. You know what it did? It put on videotape an abortion, it gave viewers a window into the womb and a graphic picture of what actually happens in an abortion. The film showed a baby trying to escape the destructive instruments of the abortionist. The drama on the screen did not resemble the removal of a parasite or a tumor. And because it just showed the facts, it it was deemed inflammatory, unjustifiable, unfair, reckless. No one was saying that it wasn't true. William Wilberforce is a man who fought to defeat the slave trade of Britain as a Christian man. If you've never watched the movie Amazing Grace, I would say to you, go see that movie and let God inspire your heart to stand for truth. You know what he did? He went into the slave boats and collected some shackles that were used to tie other human beings to the deck of a ship where many of them would die in transit. He took those shackles and he dropped them on the floor of the House of Commons. You know, everybody thought about William Wilberforce? You're a radical. Why? You're inflammatory. Why? Because he brought the truth and dropped it in front of them. I believe that when the truth of this issue is made known, the human heart has a natural response. It cries out. It's why I believe that you will never watch on PBS or the History Channel or the Discovery Channel an hour program about how to terminate life, about how abortion works. Why not if it's just a medical procedure? Why not if it's just the elimination of an indiscernible mass of protoplasm? Why not? And I think the answer very simply is this. Even the people who are okay with it, would have a change of heart at some level if they knew the truth. If they knew the truth of what was happening all across our country at least 1.6 million times a year, that something in this image of God and man, something in this conscience that God has given us, would rise up and say, We can't do that. That is unacceptable. Because it is not just another medical procedure. And the human dignity of the human heart knows that what lies within, in the words of every mom, is my baby. And what is unborn is defined as a human being that has the right to life, to dignity, to the pursuit of happiness, and to live. How can we affect change in our country? The first thing I would say is this. Pray. Pray that God would forgive us as a nation. And pray that God would not give us what we deserve in regards to this issue. Pray that he would cause us to be a people who are driven by the great commandment and the great commission. Who don't go out there flaming. But who go out there with truth. Who go out there with a discernible, uh, if if you will, purpose. And that is to begin to influence the culture of life. Heart by heart. Life by life. So that the glory of God in the area of human dignity, human life, would be known. But do it in a way that is loving. Gain acceptance with your audience by the intense love that you have for them. Because you're going to have to speak truth to them that is not going to go over well. So you better be sure that you are an engaged person. That you're not just a single issue life. God has given us so many issues that we need to be concerned about. So make sure that you're keeping a balance in your life and speaking the truth out of a heart that loves people and wants them to know the truth. If this issue has been part of your life, your personal history, I want to encourage you to do this. Confess the sin. Go to God. Go to a friend. Confess it. Go to the Lord. It's not the unpardonable sin. It's one that will bother you and one that you will struggle with. Get it out in the open with someone. Uncover it. Deal with it. Find that there is grace and forgiveness. If King David, in Psalm 51, could find forgiveness for adultery and murder, then certainly you can find the grace of God in this area. Whether you're a woman who was involved in such a thing, whether by a lie or not, maybe with open eyes. If you are a man who has coerced a woman into this, who has called for that in me, as a means of preserving your financial future, then go to God and confess it for what it is. Jesus Christ can forgive all of our sins. First John 1.9 says, If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so as we wrestle with the truth like this, that pinches the conscience, that brings up past memories, where do we go? We go to the cross. We go to the same place that we go to, whether it's lust or lying or greed or whatever it is. We go to the cross. And realize that Jesus Christ shed his blood so that we could be forgiven. If you've wrestled with this issue as a woman or as a man, uh, a lady in her church, Carol Skibenez, would be glad to talk to you. I called her yesterday and just verified that I could ask you to go and speak to her about this issue. She's involved at the Women's Health Resource Center in a post-abortion trauma healing seminar. It's called PATH. And it may be of help to you. Maybe, maybe today God's just going to draw you out and say, you know what, I need to deal with this issue once and for all. I've got to stop hiding it. Don't let shame silence you and keep you guilty. Address it. And folks, listen, I mean this in every area of our lives. Don't let shame silence. There's grace for you. Abundant, amazing grace. Young people, how do you avoid this issue? Sexual purity is your only option. It's your only option. Okay? And it's how you take a stand on this issue. So that you never participate in it. So that you're never tempted to do it. And the only way to avoid that is by living a godly, pure life. And if you as an individual are ever caught in this situation with an unwanted pregnancy, an unwanted, Desired pregnancy. Realize that you don't resolve a bad decision by making another bad decision. And can I think if I was going to boil it down and say that, I think is what the culture is doing. The bad decision, that yeah, that's yeah, difficult. The kid's going to have to pay child support for a baby that he'll probably never spend time with. Is that easy? No, it's painful. It's painful. But it's better than live with guilt the rest of your life. It's better than wondering the rest of your life. Decisions have consequences. And I think the other way that we can address this issue is by saying this. May Christians be known as people who love children. May we be known as people who open up their hearts and lives to children. See, it's one thing for me to say, I love life, I'm pro-life. Okay, okay. prove it, prove it. How do I prove it? I get involved in the lives of people who struggle, who have broken homes. I show them the love of Christ. Get involved. Pour yourself out. Do things that are tangible, measurable. Couple those acts of love with prayer to God for help. Psalm 127 says Children are a gift from the Lord in all stages in all circumstances, in all forms, in all capacities, they are designed by God. Let that truth settle in and embrace that truth and live that truth. Don't ignore certain segments of the population. Engage, love, be like Jesus. Frank Vitelli is with us this morning. Had his wife's memorial service last Sunday night. Lost her a week and a half ago. Frank loved his wife as her capacities faded. Why? Because no matter how limited her capacities were, what was she? She was still a human being, precious in the eyes of God. And Frank, you demonstrated that. That diminishing of capacities did not make the person less valuable but maybe, truly, in need of a greater demonstration of love, which is what was poured out on that house for days. Why? Because of the preciousness of life and of the gift of individuals who make a difference. So may we be known as people who love life, who don't see their kids as an inconvenience, as an interruption, as a financial liability, but as a gift from God. Do those other things come along with it sometimes? Sure they do. Sometimes raising children is difficult. It can be painful. It can be draining. But they are a gift from God to be loved and cherished. May God help us to be a church that loves life, that sees the value of life as created by God, who understands what the unborn is and refuses to do damage to what the unborn is so that God may be glorified in the life that he has created. For his glory. Would you pray with me this morning? Father as we conclude this discussion.